it's Zach Servideo from Boston Speaks Up. I'm here with the sponsor, Reed. Silicon Valley Bank is a proud sponsor of Boston Speaks Up for more than 35 years. Silicon Valley Bank has helped innovative companies and their investors move bold ideas forward fast. SVB provides targeted financial services and expertise through its offices at 53 State Street in downtown Boston and in Newton and innovation centers around the world. With commercial, international, and private banking services, SVB helps address the unique needs of Boston's innovators. Learn more at svb.com. So Zach's video here with Boston Speaks Up. I'm here with Chris Savage, co-founder and CEO of Wistia. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being with us, Chris. So I got some good feedback from uh, from listeners to read just the summary that I write up that goes with the Boston O post. So I'm mm-hmm. going to read that, and then we're just going to kind of go Great. into a, a jam. Uh, Chris Savage is the CEO and co-founder of Wistia, a video software company based in Cambridge, Mass. Wistia is the software behind innovative video programming initiatives from brands across industries. Wistia also has its own slate of original video series, which includes Brandwagon, 110-100, and Low Views High Impact. Savage and his co-founder, Brendan Schwartz, started Wistia in Schwartz's living room in 2006. Wistia has since grown into a multi-million dollar business with more than 100 employees. Before Wistia, Savage helped produce an Emmy Award-winning feature-length documentary and was named a top young entrepreneur by Business Week. He graduated from Brown University with a degree in art semiotics and was a winner of the Weston Fine Arts Award for Excellence in Filmmaking. Amazing. Uh, thanks for being with us today. Yeah, excited excited to chat. So before we kind of just flow through, get to know each other, introduce you to the community, um, would love to hear like from your perspective, like top line, like 2020, what is Wistia? Um, yeah, so we're we're really trying to help people tell better stories, communicate better with video. Um, what that mostly means is helping marketers present the content that they have, understand how it performs, um, so that they can make better videos and bet, better understand how they connect with their audience. And then that shows up in a lot of different ways. So we have tools like channels. You can make like a Netflix-like experience for videos on your site. People can subscribe directly. You can build an owned audience. Um, We're spending a lot of time talking and teaching about brand affinity marketing, which is this idea that if you can get people to spend a lot of time with your brand through long-form content, through podcasts, through video shows, through documentaries, through films, or in-person events, lots of different stuff. But really, if you can get people to spend time with you, and they can understand your values. They can build an incredibly strong connection. And that's super important in a world where it's like getting more expensive to do advertising. SEO is getting harder. All the platforms, Google, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, it's all pay to play. and yeah. It's all harder to get people to actually visit your website and understand what it is that you do. Mm-hmm. And so in that world, if you can build a really strong brand, the impact can be huge. And that's what brand affinity marketing is about. And that's what we've been like. We've been pushing really hard on um, that since the end of last year. Nice. And you you practice what you preach. I, I don't know where I got this piece of information, but at one point, didn't your team page 
go viral because yes. of the tech, like you sort of like created the technology where if you hovered over the photo on the team page, it would switch to another photo. Yeah. So it was really interesting. That was, yeah, you're right. That was, it was an early moment of basically we were six people on the team. Okay. And before that, we so had, what year was that? That was like 2010 okay. probably. Uh, six people on the team. And before that, our team page said, had four people on it and it had a, each person's name with a description and it said management. And so we we're trying to make it look like there was a big company and only management was written up about. But like, sure. if you looked at that page, it was very clear that we were a very tiny company. <laughs> like only a tiny company would do this, right? Right. right. Like there's no photos <laughs> because the photos would make it clear that I'm 22. You know, right. like that's yeah. not going to be on there. Yeah. And, but we'd hired these two other people. They're on the team and um, we felt really bad about that team page. Yeah. And we were not having a, we were still going and you were growing, but we were really small. And um, I didn't really think anyone was looking at the team page. And so one day we just thought, you know what? All six of us are here. Someone was there with a the camera. We took a photo of us standing in front of a whiteboard mm -hmm. and we took three different shots and like one normal one and two goofy ones. And then my co-founder, Brendan, when he was putting the team page on the website, he realized he could just have it switch between the goofy ones um, when you hovered and that would make a cool effect. Yeah. And then he made an Easter egg on the page that was, if you just type dance on that page, it would start playing music and it would randomly switch between like the people. And he did that because it was someone's birthday on the team. And we put it out on Twitter thinking like nothing would happen and it went viral. And you created a really interesting experience. People like wanted to check it out that no one else had done that. Exactly. Yeah. No one had done a team page like that. Yeah. And so it was very different for that reason. But the crazy thing was it got us a bunch of sales. Yeah. Wow. And so it was like, that I was eye opening. It was incredibly <laughs> eye opening, especially because we'd been at that time just 100% focused on video, writing blog posts about like the 10 reasons why yeah. you should be using video hosting, all this kind yeah. of stuff. Sure. And then like, here's a random team page of us looking like we now look like the smallest business we've ever looked. Yeah. You know, it was like the most transparent about who we are. The pictures were not good. <laughs> Let's be clear. Yeah. They were not, they were not, not good. Right. And yet it was authentic. It was funny. It was interesting. It meant something about our brand. Like that we would take a creative risk. Yeah. It would be authentic. Um, and people connected with that. So they figured out what the product was and they bought. And then it was over the years, many times, like with different things, this happened over this lesson over and over and over again, that like our brand was actually driving the discovery of what our product is. Right. And then people would use the product and then they'd keep using it because they love the brand. Um, but Your brand was driving the discovery of where the product like was going. Yeah. I think yeah, that happens no, a lot great. in today's yeah. world. Like, yeah. you know, there's so many direct to consumer products that you hear about or you think it's a cool brand or the, the, uh, you see someone with the product and they're just like, they're just so excited about it. They, they love it so much. Yeah. They have so much affinity for it. Yeah. Um, and usually that affinity is created by the product itself and the yeah. product experience. Yeah. So like when, you know, if I got an Apple watch and if I, if it doesn't work properly, I'm going to think this is not very good, but if it works really well and it changes my behavior and I like that I use my phone less and I start to build like affinity yeah. over time, you kind of have to have the product. Yeah. The simple thing that we started to figure out was that, you can actually build brand affinity in other ways, but you need time to do it. Yep. And you can't like a 30 second ad. Yeah. It has got to be the best ad in the world. I can think of one ad that I think built a ton of brand affinity, which was the dollar shave club. Yeah. Um, initial ad, but beyond really that one, yeah. there are not a lot that create a ton of affinity in the ad itself. I was working with giant media back in like, that was, I, I'm from Boston, but I went out to LA yeah. in like the 
around prior on the time Wistia started, it was like 2011, 2012, so a little after. And um, Giant Media was actually instrumental in that Dollar Shave yeah. video. And what was interesting about it, it was like totally off base, but also like it was part of like a broader brand strategy. Yeah. So like it fit in, it fit into like a strategy yeah. over time. Uh, which is, I think, also what you're alluding to. Like a 30 second spot can make sense if it's part of like a broader narrative and a longer game that you're playing. Yeah, and I think I think the question is just like, where where are you getting people to spend time with you? Is it with your product? Is it on your site? Is it in your community? Um, is it in content? Like that's the question. And the thing that we just eventually realized was like, there is this opportunity, which is the opposite of what almost everyone has been doing. You know, we'd be getting this advice like, make shorter and shorter videos. But really, it is like if people don't know your, if they have no connection to you, yeah, they're not going to probably just spend an hour out of the gate. Yeah, they'll spend thirty seconds. Well, what's interesting about that is like we work with Tubular Labs, my yeah. my, my my business does, yeah. which is work you know uses Wistia. Yeah, probably a lot of overlap with companies totally. you serve, right? Yeah. And they have these new um, new metrics: deduplicated reach and watch time. Yeah, and the amount of people that will tune in and lean back and yeah. watch content and digital video yeah. is only growing. Yes. It's only growing. And yes. actually there's some there's some data around the same brand doing a eight to ten minute clip versus a two minute clip. And the if you look at the two minute clips, the eight yeah. to tens, people are more likely to complete the eight to ten minute than they are the two. In some cases we've looked at. Oh, it, it, the content still has to be good. But the content has to be good, and they have to know what they're getting into. Right. But like that's exactly what we have seen. Like when we launched One Ten One Hundred, yeah, there was more time spent with our brand because of the launch of One Ten One Hundred, the first two months that it was out, than every single marketing activity we had done in the twelve months previous. Yeah, and that's one of the shows you. That's that's a Wistia show. Yeah, it's a Wistia yeah. show, and and what happened is if people made it three minutes into this thing, which was an hour and forty minutes long, they watched the whole thing. Yeah. So it's like. Think about how many 30 second videos you'd have to get out there yeah. or minute long videos to yeah. even come close to that kind of brand impact. It's just, it's night and day. And that's where like in the attention economy that we live in, that that amount of like opted in attention yeah. at that time, like that's when if you want to compare, what's more valuable? A hundred people that are watching something for eight seconds or 25 people that watch something for three minutes. Yeah. I mean, you start to have these interesting debates. But that's exactly, like, yeah. And it, I mean, the I, quality, a quality group that's that's yes. locked in, it's like, well, it's what, always more valuable. And their, their likelihood, you know, like they're, and if you're tracking them as a software like Wistia offers, if you're tracking them through to c conversion events, then the data proves it out. The, the smaller locked in audience yeah. converts. Well, it's also the small, like if it's, I think it's a perfect example. If you have 25 people and they're spending three minutes versus 100 spending 30 seconds, the 25 that spend three minutes, they're more likely the next time you have a three minute thing to actually consider it. And they're also more likely to tell anybody else and about share it. it. Oh, and yeah. so it's like that yeah. group can compound and the one that spends no time with you can't. Yeah. It's impossible, right? Yeah. Like it's like if you're in the TikTok feed, yeah. you're just there and then you're gone. Yeah. Um, and if you're in there and you connect with somebody and they get you to spend more time and more time and more time, yeah. then you start trusting it as a source of content. Now you start learning, you start educating yourself or you start getting entertained or whatever it is. Now you're building a real brand connection. That's great. We dove right in there, but I kind of want to know where's like, this is a very unique um, 
this the culture by the way in the in the energy and in, in this space yeah. is awesome yeah. i met colin downstairs i yeah. called him dikembe he's wearing a dikembe matumbo jersey yeah. Yeah. i saw some really cool like wistia swag the team's wearing like very just collaborative environment like you've built a really unique business you talked about the risk you took early on with your team page i'd love to kind of go back in time a little yeah. bit like, where where did you grow up and where like where did you develop that sort of app, the appetite for storytelling? You, you know, went into a filmmaking yeah. path and, 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 um, and also the ability to just take, take some risk. Yeah. Um, so I grew up in Providence, Rhode Island and, um, I grew up in like a very, I'll say tech forward family. So my dad, um, is a professor of computer science and helped start the computer science department at Brown. My older brother, who was like 14 years older than me, went to Brown, did computer science, and joined Microsoft pretty early. Okay. My, uh, my old brother-in-law, <laughs> former brother-in-law, <laughs> yeah. also joined Microsoft super early. And so I was just around like so much technology growing. Cool. Like it was like the first day a DVD player came out, like we had it. Mm-hmm. You know, the first time like the PlayStation came out and the Xbox and like all these things. Um, my house was just like, that's awesome. this, yeah, the Bose wing radio. Over to your house. Well, it's just like, <laughs> yeah. it was just like my dad would be like, I need to do this because I need to understand this technology. They're like, okay. Yeah. So it's like the Bose wave radio that like makes enormous sound out of the time, like all this stuff. I was yeah. just constantly, constantly exposed to it. Amazing. And I think like, um, I was in a lot of conversations early around like how technology scales and like what it can do. Um, and so, you know, I was like on the internet really early and like building apps and hypercard and like all these like different types of things. Um, but it was mostly like for fun. Like, you know, that was my, all my, all my gamed a lot. Like it was like, uh, it was all just like really, just really having a lot of like fun with the tech. And then when I was in college, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And I was like going between a lot of different potential majors and I ended up realizing that, you know, I'd always loved telling stories and I'd always been like, I, in my mind, I would constantly have an experience and think like, I think this is going to be a good story. And I would try to like hold on to the moments that are good stories and like hone them. Like I'd practice, I'd tell people and iterate practice and practice, practice. And I'd always felt this urge to tell stories. And I was afraid to actually kind of admit that because I was afraid that I was not creative and that like, I couldn't go into a creative discipline. Computer science was your comfort zone. It's what you kind of knew. Yeah, engineering, yeah. computer engineering, science, math. Like yeah. I always did really well. Yeah. And I, uh, and it was a scary idea to go into an industry right. that was so creative. Mm-hmm. But then eventually I decided like, I have to do this. Like this is my chance. Like I, there's a, an opportunity sitting in front of me right here at school. And like, I'll just, I'll go into it and see how it goes. And that was like about halfway through college, I decided to do it at Brown. They call it art semiotics because they have to make everything different and like the yeah. own thing. Uh, and, <laughs> um, and it was funny, like I jumped into it. One of the first classes I had to take to do film was like an intro art class where it's like painting and drawing. And I was like, this could be so stupid. Yeah. And then of course I learned that there's actually, it is a skill that can be learned. Like it's not just creative. You can, or you can learn some of the creative skills with practice. Right. And I ended up loving this class that I just never imagined that I would love. And in every class I took that was like these creative classes, I just, the first time, instead of just doing the homework, I was doing extra work. Like mm-hmm. I was finding the professors, I was spending time with other people. I was spending all of this time out of class 
um, like I became obsessed with that. You were obsessed with the process of, of creating. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and that, storytelling and storytelling. Yeah. And then like, I was trying to learn in every possible way I could. And so I was like, yeah. assigning myself up for internships. What year was this? You were at Brown? Oh, I graduated years. Brown in 2005. Okay. So this is like 2003. Okay. 2004. Cool. cool. Yeah. Oh, you went to school. Did you overlap with Zach Diossi? Couple uh, years? May I don't know who that is, but uh, he played football at Brown and uh, okay. he stole a couple Super Bowl rings from the Patriots. Oh yeah. He's uh, the long snap if you have one career in the NFL, yeah. long snapper. Okay. Yeah. Oh gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's yeah, the yeah, long yeah, snapper yeah, yeah, from Brown. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Um yeah, I must have overlapped with him. Um but yeah, and I did that and then I just basically like signed myself up for like a million internships and like just want to learn not just in a classroom but like by doing. And in Providence, like would you go up to Boston? Yeah, I did some in I did some yeah. in Boston. Yeah. Um and what type of companies? I interned at a company called like Picture Park. Okay. That was here in Boston that made commercials. Um, I interned at like some like podunk, like little um, like film things in <laughs> Rhode Island. Yeah. And then I interned on this project that was a feature length film um, about the mayor of Providence. And the mayor of Providence at the time was this guy, Buddy Cianci, who I've listened to Crime Town. Yeah. So anyone who hasn't listened yeah. to the Crime Town podcast, I yeah, recommend. Yes. So first season of Crime Town <laughs> is the same story. Okay. But basically he was the longest serving mayor in the US. He was kicked out of office twice. The first time in 1980 for assaulting um, his ex-wife's lover, who happened to be his best friend. Um, with a fire log and like putting out a cigarette in his face. He got kicked out of office, put on probation for 10 years, and then um, decided to run right after he got off of probation again for mayor of Providence, and he won by about 100 votes. And then he revitalized the downtown, right? and people loved him. Uh, but the schools were crap and like all this stuff. And then the, the FBI agent who got him in 1980 came after him again, and basically got him on um, a RICO law, which is like effectively exists for mob bosses, and we followed him for six months before he went to jail when he was certain he wasn't going to go. Oh, I need to see your doc. Yeah. Is this the doc that won the Emmy? Yeah. Nice. Well, what's the name of it's it? It's just called Buddy. It's called Buddy? Yeah. And where can you access it? You can that? see it on Vimeo. <laughs> you can see it on Vimeo? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Maybe, um, maybe we'll, we'll have to throw a shout out to that in this yeah. post. Yeah. Um, How long is it? Uh, I think it's like 80 minutes. Okay, cool. Yeah. But so I started as yeah. an intern and yeah. then I basically wouldn't leave. So I did it for the summer yeah. and she's like, bye. See, I was like, well, you know, I'm doing this class on marketing. Like maybe I can help with some of that. She's like, oh, oh, that would be amazing. And then I did that. And then I did a class on editing and I sort of, I basically was like learning and doing. Yeah. Um, and so I ended up being one of the associate producers on it, which so was cool. amazing. It was so cool. Yeah. That's cool. Um, how did like how did you go did were you part of that process too to like like submit to, to for the emmys like how does that yeah, so how does that all play out basically you have to air on tv to be submitted for that right. and so um one of the funders uh i think if i remember correctly it was like one of the funders was was some public television group that yeah. like by funding it they got the rights air it, and okay. that aired it and we so were that qualified that qualified yeah. us and then and then do some marketing like uh, oh to, to get right and then after that like yeah, yeah well there's like a bunch yeah. of different yeah. emmys and then yeah. there's like the yeah. main emmys that yeah. people see on tv so yeah. not the main emmys that yeah. people see on tv yeah. but it was like the new england emmys won for best documentary yeah uh and that's awesome yeah so basically yeah. they just like pick from yeah. within that 
but we had been in about, I'm going to say like 12 different festivals and had won a lot of the festivals. Nice. And actually the thing that was like amazing and also like kind of heartbreaking about the documentary was it had won all these festivals and it had so much potential. I thought it was really good. The first time I saw it premiered was, was in Providence. So biased audience, but like 600 person theater sold out Yeah. standing ovation at the end. First time I've ever been involved in anything like this. Yeah. We go up on stage and start answering questions. And I'm answering some questions. Yeah. I'm like, what the hell is going on? Like, yeah. I'm like 21. Yeah. I shouldn't be doing this. You know, it's crazy. Yeah. But then we brought it to distributors to try to actually get a deal. Right. Cause we, we did some self distribution, but there's an opportunity for us, like, you know, try to get this like nationally in theaters and the head of, um, HBO documentaries at the time, who was like the, the best, you know, people to dis distribute the movie. They saw it and they're like, love the movie. Super good. But we did some research and we had a, a, a documentary about a politician a couple of years ago. And we don't think we can distribute this because like, we just don't think political things like really work. Hmm. And I remember like the filmmaker who I was working with was so heartbroken by this. Yeah. This was like her shot. Right. And I'm sitting there watching, like she spent like six years of her life on this. Yeah. I spent like, I was involved in it for like three years Yeah. and still it was painful for me. And I'm like, you know, if you, this is a world where like one person can make this kind of decision yeah. over the path you have forward. I was like, I don't know about this. Right. Like, it almost was like, I very quickly saw inside something that was like just below the echelon of enormous success. Yeah. And I'm like, that's not a fun place to be. Yeah. And it was one of the things that when we saw the opportunity to start with, yeah, I was made me really like, so, like searching for opportunities like this to be like in control yeah. and to not have to rely on like the whim of one person. Yeah. You don't want to spend three to six years of your life to get to the table to play roulette. Exactly. <laughs> like, exactly. Wait a second. Exactly. I just spent six years. Like now I'm leaving it all the chance. Exactly. And it's like, you know, so that's, I, I totally get that. Um, okay. So a few years there, what, like, when did you meet Brendan Schwartz, your co-founder? So we lived on the same freshman hall. Uh, so we were friends from like the first weekend of college. Amazing. Yeah. And then did you guys move up to like Cambridge together. So he Providence. moved up and we graduated in 2005. He moved up here directly and got a job at a, a software company, software startup, and was living in this like 10 person house in Cambridge. And then I spent that first year still doing film stuff. And then we saw the opportunity for Wistia like about like eight months, nine months after we graduated, started talking about it and thinking about like, would we do the, turn this into a real thing? And we decided we'd do that. And he quit his job and I moved up here um, with my girlfriend, now wife, and we moved into that like 10 person house. Nice. You and your now wife mm -hmm. lived in the house. Mm -hmm. Sweet. I had a house like that in, in Somerville. Yeah. There's only six of us though. Yeah. But at one point, like my sister lived there and my now wife lived there. Yeah. It was like, there was like one bathroom, yeah. like, but that's what you did. That's what you do. It was awesome. It was so yeah, amazing. It was so much fun. And like, I got a text from one of my groomsmen today, just drove by the Highlands because yeah. we lived on, it was Highland Ave in Somerville. We lived on it, Highland Ave in uh, Cambridge. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah that's good, funny. Good yeah, vibes good with vibes, Highland Ave. Good vibes, yeah. good vibes, good vibes. Yeah. That's, that's funny. That's cool. So yeah. when, so <laughs> when you, um, so when you founded uh, Wistia, it was from, was it from that house? Or, yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. basically. I mean, we spent the summer. My parents have like a house on Martha's Vineyard, so we spent the summer there because it's free rent. Yeah, and then we moved into that house. We did not get enough work done that first summer, I'll yeah. say. Yeah, uh, um, but yeah, we moved into that house and we worked out of there for like two years. Okay, and I lived there for five years, four years, and Brendan lived there for like nine. Nice. Yeah. 
Nice. Yeah. The house has, has a legacy. I'm has sure you have a group of people you get together with. To yeah. Oh, yeah. They're like some of all my best friends are yeah. people yeah. the house. Yeah. 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 Likewise. Yeah. Highland Ave. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's, that's, that's the, the key. That, that's it right there. Find, yeah. your, find your Highland Ave. Yeah. Everybody. <laughs> Everyone needs to find their Highland Ave. Um, so talk through a little bit of the early years of growth mm-hmm. and some of the growing pains and like finding your stride as a company. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, so the... First year, we addition, We didn't start by saying we're going to make a platform for businesses to use video better on the web. Like we started by saying like we're going to do stuff with video on the web. And initially, we were focused on filmmakers. And so the first year was like we're going to make a filmmaking competition website. That didn't work. They were making a portfolio site for filmmakers. We did that. We launched it. We got people using it. But like they, when we tried, we realized we had to make money from it. And there was like not, there was no way we we're going to make it work like economically. So it took about a year to figure out. We've met all these people. Um, we've talked to a lot of businesses actually from just like going to meetups and meeting startups who want those businesses are co- contacting us saying, you guys are the video guys. Like, can you help me? Yeah. And we've been saying, no, we help artists. Right. And we're like, well, we're going to run out of money. This business is going to die. So maybe we should talk yeah. to them. Yeah. Uh, and we realized a lot of things we'd built for these filmmakers was actually going to be really valuable. Yeah. And like the initial customer, the first customer we got um, signed up to use Wistia to privately share videos internally. Okay. So they were sending DVDs around the world. They're doing clinical trials and they're shooting video through an endoscope of the surgery. So the video is incredibly important. But because they were doing trials in like South America and Europe, they'd have to sh- over quote overnight these DVDs back. That took two days. They'd often be too late. They'd already be iterating and trying different things. And so we gave them a way to do it all on the web, totally okay. securely, commenting stuff like that. And then once that happened, in hindsight, it felt like it felt very slow back then. In hindsight, I think it was kind of fast. But basically, each month we got another customer, and they were all big companies in different industries. So very quickly, we had this company, Sonus Network, signed on, which was like a large telecommunications company. We got Cirque du Soleil to sign on. They found us through, like, I spent $30 on Google AdWords, and it got, like, one person to contact us. And it was Cirque du Soleil. They signed up and spent, like, $500 a month. Like, Nestle became a customer. It was insane. And, you know, it happened very quickly with an incredibly minimal product. Like... The product we built for that medical device company, we asked them if they would if they would pay for a private way to share video. Uh, they said yes. We said this is the pricing. They're like, great, we want the best price. We're like, all right, that's four hundred dollars a month. We're like, we'll come back once we build this. We went away for two weeks because we built a completely separate thing from the portfolio site. They signed they signed on, used it, great. And then now the next month, like we're getting a film company. It, it was like the speed with which it happened and then how minimal the product was was truly insane. Um, Took us about another year and we realized we needed help. Yeah. Because this was obviously a bigger thing if these big companies were trusting us. And we found two people we wanted to hire and we didn't know what angel investing was, but we'd now heard about it. And so we decided to raise angel money and so we could hire these two people. Um, so we raised the angel money in 2008. What was the angel round? It was 650000 Okay. Um, and the plan there was like, now we can hire these folks and we can, they, we, they have more experience and we can like start to go faster yeah. and, you know, hit some speed bumps, but, um, took us about another two years from there to like really unlock growth. So we were like slowly, but surely getting more customers for this private video sharing thing. Right. We built analytics into the product because, um, people wanted to know for compliance training. 
if they send a video to like this a sales team, like, are they watching it? Yeah. So we built this in and people liked it. Interesting. And it was super helpful. And it was actually required in that case. And then we started having people say like, well, we want to embed these videos in our website. Right. We're like, no, we're the private thing. We yeah. don't do embedding. And they're like, no, look, we like your interface. We like your player. We love your analytics. Like, can you let us embed? And we kept saying no, and people kept asking. Mm-hmm. And then eventually, like, maybe a lot more people want that. Yeah. yeah. And so, what period of time, like a, this, some months or some. This is now so, four years after the company started. So, this is in 2010. And how, and how long, though, were people requesting that you months. publicly host? A few months, and you're probably, like, okay. It was probably like six months. Yeah. And we actually would, we, there was a way that we could make an embed code by hand and email it over to people. Sure. So, we were doing that. Yeah. And, which is insane, but that's yeah. what we're doing. And um, then, like, we decided we had to actually like update the product, make it so you can embed within the product. And we also had learned through this whole period of time that our pricing—we've kind of been pricing for larger companies, but actually most of the demand was coming from small, medium-sized businesses. Yeah. So we had lower introductory prices, and we let you like self-serve online. So mm-hmm. We did self-service online with embedding, and you know we're about four years in. At that point, we had thirty customers. Yeah. And then we launched that within two months. Um, we had 200. Wow. And that is when I was like, oh my God, this is going to work. Yeah. And that was like, it was like that moment when there was like, finally, it took you all, like several years to have 40 customers and it took you a few months to five X that. Yeah. Yeah. And when that happened, it was clear that like, if this just continued, the company would become profitable. Right. And we thought like that would be amazing and that we could get back to this, like, we could get to a place where we could be more confident when we were profitable. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were also actually just running out of money at that time. Mm-hmm. So we had to raise another round. So, we, and we were very fortunate in our timing. Like we literally were running out of money as we got to 200 customers. So I went back to our angel investors like, good news and bad news, I'm out of money, but good news is look at this. And they're like, yeah, this is amazing. So we raised that round pretty easily. And then we was that an official A round? What it was, was that? another it was seed a, round. It was another seed round. Yeah. Okay. Um, it was a price seed yeah. round, but it was okay. another seed round. Um, and so then everything was converted in, and we, yeah. we never raised uh, venture again. And then what? Has, so then some. How many years later was it where like you've had suitors come in yeah. to, to look to acquire Wistia, and there is well documented sort of decision by yourself and by Brendan to sort of take on the 17.3 million debt to continue to build this rocket ship. Yeah. When did that happen? How did that happen? Yeah. So so, um, early 2017, so seven years later, uh, the company had grown a lot um, and probably had 70 people on the team or something. And we had a, a bunch of different companies approach us about acquiring business, like three different companies at the same time, like within weeks of each other. We're like, hey, we're interested in acquiring your company. What mar- without say, you maybe can't say who, but with what, what markets were they coming from? Were they coming from different places? Were they sort of pseudo competitors? No, they were coming from different places. Com- yeah. Yeah. Which is also interesting. What, um, what markets were they coming from? Um, yeah, they were coming from like, you know, some more general tech and some okay. marketing and stuff. Okay. Yeah. Um, and people have always like poked around. I think that's one of the things that happens in tech is like people are often poking around to buy companies. Sure. And we'd always just said no, cause we're really happy. Um, but at this moment when these three companies came to us, you know, Brent and I started talking, like we should probably have this conversation, like see what's here. Mm-hmm. 
and always take the call, take the call. And we took it more seriously. And I should also say like in all these cases, the people I spoke with and the companies like respected all of them, you know, it wasn't like, Oh, I like these people. And I was like, no, in all cases, I was like, these are great people. Right. Um, but the funny thing was we didn't really, it like caused us to have a set of conversations between each other that we hadn't been having. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Like we realized about like what you wanted the company to be, what we wanted the company to be and actually how we thought it was going. Okay. And what we ended up getting to a place where we had an offer and we we're sitting there, look at the offer and it was like definitely a life changing amount of money. And we're talking about what we would do if we sold the company and we're like, well, we'd have this earn out period, be there for two years. And I'm like, well, we would probably start another company again. Like that seemed pretty likely. Like we felt like at this point we've been working together for a long time. Uh, we feel like we work together really well. We complement each other. Like we definitely start something else. We're talking about things we'd start. Well, you know, we've been in the video space for a long time. You know, it's we've grown a lot, but we actually we think there's like in some cases like our market's been slower. Like we think there's other opportunities that are about to come. Blah blah blah. Riffing on that stuff. So like, okay, we'd probably go back to a similar space. Yeah. Who would we hire to do this? You can get where I'm going here. We're like, yeah. we're basically trying to Our rebuild team. the company. Yeah. So, well, why would we really rebuild the company? And I'm like, actually, we're unhappy. And we realized because of these offers that we were actually very unhappy with where we were and how we were running the business. And we had been through, at that point, you know, after raising that money, the 750, which was in 2010, we got the business profitable like a couple years later, maybe 18 months later. And it was amazing. Once we got profitable, we started doing a lot more stuff like that team page. We started doing way more interesting, like creative risks. And we started just trying more stuff and building, solving more fundamental things with our product and like taking longer term stances and everything. And it all worked. Like the company grew a ton. We hired amazing people. We did more interesting creative work. It was like getting recognized. All that stuff was happening. It was like, this thing yeah. was compounding, it felt really good. And we actually hit this moment where we had about 10 million in revenue and 3 million in profit. Which, and we had just grown that year like close to 100. percent Okay, and we had no venture in. Okay, yeah. So I'm looking like you look at this like this is pretty good. That's yeah. what I thought. Yeah. I, mean, I think we're doing pretty well. Yeah. And I started talking to all these other funders and people, and everyone's like, whoa, whoa, whoa! Like you're that profitable. You would probably be growing way faster if you weren't profitable. Like if you're spending all of that on growth. You'd be, you would be like rocket ship. Like you're missing the big opportunity. Like let's get some more money into this company. Let's do all this stuff. And everyone we talked to said that. And so at some point we're like, maybe we're wrong. Like maybe we're not running the business well. And maybe these people are right, maybe we should do that. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, because we've been profitable, we'd saved up some cash. And so we were actually able to run the business at a loss. So we changed how we ran in the company. Mm. And instead of running profitably, we ran negative. Okay. And we put everything into growth. We started yeah. hiring way more aggressively, um, trying way more tests, all doing all these things. And we got to a point where we're losing like at one point about $300,000 a month. And what I discovered is that even if you have really long-term retentions and you say you're really long-term, when you're losing $300,000 a month, let's say in February, these are all real numbers. And then you go to March and February, you know, was like, you know, you're supposed to make 40 grand more than the, the month before or something. And you don't. So in March, you've hired more people and you're doing more stuff. Instead of losing 300, you lose 340. And then the next month, if the same thing happens, you're gonna be losing 400. Yeah. And you're like, wait a second, the math on how much cash we have left, not that much. 
And so everything gets short-term focus. Mm -hmm. Everybody in the company started to think about like, how do we just make this month the best it can be? Which seems like a good thing, but it meant that we weren't doing any of the creative stuff or any of the long-term stuff. Long-term aspirational and so stuff, yeah. When we were looking at this moment of selling the business, we were like, you know what? We're unhappy because we're not doing our best work. And like, it didn't even affect revenue growth. Like revenue growth isn't like unbelievably great because of this. Like, I think we're growing in spite of it. That became our assumption. We like flipped on our own, everything we'd done in the previous like three years. We're like, yeah. what if we'd been wrong and all that? Right. And so um, it just made us think like, we if we sell this business to somebody else, like we're gonna always regret that we didn't fix building the company. And because we're gonna work there for two years, we're probably still gonna have to fix it. So like, what if we could put ourselves in a position where we actually are running the business and we're fixing it? And the problem was, that if we didn't sell, it would have been an amazing return for our investors. And so we'd instantly become misaligned with them. Mm -hmm. And what we settled on was like, well, if we raise debt, yeah. we could give them a return like we sold the business. Yeah. And we could do the same thing with the team because we'd given the team equity, planning on like, you know, massive acquisition someday. And if there's not gonna be a massive acquisition, we shouldn't be giving them equity. And so we raised 17.3 million so we could um, do what's called a tender offer and give everybody the opportunity to sell their shares. Yeah. And then anyone who was left would be converted into one class of shares, like all common stock with Brendan and I. And we would like then focus on getting the business to profitability so we could serve the debt and be long-term focused. Super fair. Yeah. yeah. Did you have some coaches through that? Like who did you and Brendan turn to at that moment to figure out that thoughtful maneuver? Yeah. Um, there was like, uh, probably like five or six different people yeah. that were helpful with different aspects of it. We talked to an entrepreneur that had sold his business and he made a ton of money. And he said to us, he's like, no one's ever gonna say this. Like, no one's ever gonna tell you not to sell. Just in the same way that if you see someone marrying somebody that you think they probably shouldn't marry, yeah. you don't tell the person not to get married. Cause you assume there's something else going on in there. Like you assume that like behind closed doors, that relationship's actually great. Yeah. So no one's gonna tell you not to sell your business. Cause they're gonna think like you probably want to sell a business because cool. you, when we started the business, we thought we yeah. wanted to sell a business. Yeah. Like that's what we thought we wanted to do. It's right. a good analogy. Um, but what he said was he sold his company. He had a bunch of problems. The problems were still there. He fixed them himself, which benefited the company he sold to. And then he realized he no longer had a platform for building. Mm -hmm. And he'd spent like 15 years of his life building this thing. And now he'd have to create, if he wanted to have a platform for building stuff, you'd have to start completely fresh and you have to get lucky again. And you have to do all the stuff again. Cause I believe there's a lot of luck in entrepreneurship. And so, uh, he's like, I'm just telling you that. And that was like unbelievably helpful. And then I met another entrepreneur who had, basically done this exact thing, but in his case, his business was at like 200 million in revenue and he had raised 300 million in debt okay. to buy out his investors. And uh, and I just watched this guy like operate in a different level from like anybody I had ever seen before. And so a few of these stories together kind of like helped us figure out what we wanted to do. And then, you know, it was a tough process of talking to lots of folks, um, but we have like some advisors and people who like, understand this world a little bit and, and helped us through it. That's great. That's part of the, um, the beauty of Boston is the, the sort of, I mean, you throw, go in any direction right now, we'd probably run into someone we could have a pretty intellectually stimulating conversation with. But the um, one thing that's been consistent about 40 podcast episodes in for me personally, is just the, um, the idea of mentorship and sort of 
folks sort of advising each other and being and being willing to sort of provide helpful counsel yeah. as the collective community kind of you know lifts it lift it lifts itself up together yeah so that that's cool do you feel like you're building a video software company in cambridge massachusetts you know some may say oh do you like do you should you be in new york should you be in la what's the advantage from your view in being here in sort of greater boston yeah i mean i think boston has like an incredible marketing technology community mm -hmm. um there are so many folks here who have done like really interesting things there's a lot of amazing businesses that have been built here without raising tons of capital. Um, I mean, even if you want to look at HubSpot, like if you look at how much money HubSpot raised and how big they were when they went public, I think they were like 60 million in revenue when they went public um, and 100 million raised. And then you've like, they built an incredible business. Um, and like, that's because they like, it's a different approach, but I would say like far more effective approach than raising tons and tons and tons of capital. Um, and just uh, like kind of, you know, raising on a hope and a prayer that like your consumer product will like keep having user growth. Right. right. Um, so it's just a different mentality mm -hmm. and different people and for better and for worse, right? Like there's like, and I think the investment community can be stressed because there's a lot of the opportunities like that are the, you know, thousand X ones that don't feel like they're here as often. Um, but like there's tons, there's just, it's just an incredible community of people yeah. really is the thing and yeah. an incredible community of talent. Um, and everyone's really thoughtful. I think like the other nice thing about being in Boston is like, it's not only tech, like there's a bunch of tech, but there's a ton of healthcare. There's a ton of public health. There's a ton of, um, just everything. And so mm -hmm. I feel like your community, the community is not as insular. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. So let's talk a little bit about the, like the, the state of the business now, like I'll kind of throw out a couple of things that I had w working through my mind kind of coming in that I'd love to chat with you about. Like, obviously I mentioned like my work with tubular labs, mm -hmm. like we're getting ready to do some, um, announce some, some things with, with one of their partners, Digitas. Mm -hmm. And actually I just didn't realize this. Jody Robinson who's the, the CEO of Digitas North America lives in Dover, Mass mm -hmm. of all places. Um, and, I was just like looking at like what Digitas has been up to the last several months. And they did this really interesting project that caught my eye with Hewlett Packard, where they did like an original like scripted video series. And then they worked with another partner of, of Tubular Labs, Group 9, to basically uh, distribute that scripted series across all of Now This Is uh, properties on social. Mm -hmm. And that's the world I live in. Mm -hmm. like, I, like I get that world and I know you do. I'm curious, sort of speak to, like, could you give some interest? I'm, I'm curious, like some of the particular examples that that you're proud of and can speak to, like to kind of give, you know, Boston Speaks Up listeners a sense of like, here's the types of sort of original video series mm -hmm. that we're producing with B2B companies mm -hmm. that are playing the role as publisher because yeah. in 2020, most any brand even a small mom and pa shop yeah. like can really can and, and should um, embrace uh, production and think of their how an owned and operated strategy yeah. can help them grow their business so they're not so beholden to the rails of Facebook and Google. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think first thing is like 
on the last piece, like I think the critical part of like acting like a publisher, we say marketing like a media company is like, you have to treat your content like it's a product. And that means you have to market like, like it's a product. You have to research like, like it's a product. You have to talk to the viewers of it or listeners of it to understand what, what they connect with. Like in tech, it's like, you know, there's product managers doing these things like in with your content, you have to do the same thing. And usually it's a producer or it's head of development or it's, you know, the audience development person, but like there's somebody who's doing that. And I think that's like really important. And I think another critical piece with uh, that approach is having owned audience. Like having an audience that you can have a direct connection with on an open protocol, like email or RSS, like something where when you put out something, they see it. It's not programmatically fed to them. You're nurturing them yourself. Yourself. And yeah. they know that they've subscribed to your audience in that yeah. way. And that means that you can send them episodes of something, or you can send them a product update, or you can invite them to come to an event or whatever. And it's all like you get, you earn the right when they're in the owned audience. And I think that's absolutely critical when you are marketing like a media company and every media company does this. I think in terms of examples, I'll give you a few. Um, one is Drift. Mm -hmm. So Drift has done an amazing job with their podcasts of like building an incredible brand and building a ton of brand affinity by putting their people out there um, and picking the the niches and the audiences that they want to focus on. Yeah, Drift's being the conversational marketing company. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and like they have really like built a very, very strong brand in a very short period of time. Um, and they've done it predominantly through like some video podcasts and events. And so they're doing this exact thing mm -hmm. and they've crossed, you know, they're doing the classic media things of like, they have like, I think six different shows and they cross promote the shows. So they have, sure. you know, seeking wisdom and they window, window them in front of others. Yeah. Just, and it's like, yeah. the media is just practical. Yeah. practical. Yeah. This is what media companies do yeah. brand new for yeah. tech to even be thinking about it. Um, uh, another example of a company that's much smaller than them that is and never raised any money that has done this is ProfitWell. Okay. Do you know them? I'm vaguely familiar. So they're also Boston yeah. based, but they have um, basically like revenue and data analytics tools. So you can like plug in whatever your subscription management is, Stripe, what have you. They'll give you an analysis in their product about like, what your LTV is and what your churn is and like all that kind of stuff. Oh, interesting. And then they have tools that you can add on to like help with your dunning, which is like when people are churning and sending emails and they have all these like tools and stuff built in, but they're about a 75 person team. Their marketing team is about eight people. Six of the eight are focused solely on making and marketing shows. Amazing. And so they have like daily podcast, um, which also comes out as a daily email. They have a show called, pricing page teardown because part of their business actually started with consulting on pricing. And if you think about a show called pricing page teardown, like, you know, it doesn't sound like game of thrones, right? It sounds like who is actually going to be watching or listening to the show about like pricing pages. Mm -hmm. Sounds boring, except if you're running a business and you're thinking about pricing, it is one of the most important things that when you decide to focus on it, it becomes like the most important, highest leverage thing you can do. And pricing page teardown is, is basically like Game of Thrones yeah. for that person. And so they figured that out. And so they don't need tens of thousands of people to see every episode. But over time, they've built this thing up to get thousands of people watching every episode. It's been unbelievably impactful for their brand. Um, and that's one of the examples of one of their shows. They have a show called... Rev, up, rev ops and hops and they have 
um, another show called like product trade-offs and like they've, they've built this, like they're building this media empire, but it's all an owned audience. It's all about building brand affinity and it's been incredibly high leverage for them. Cause the other piece I think of treating your content like a product is you want to market your products. So you have to use the same, the same techniques you do to market uh, software, hardware, manufacturing, whatever. You just do the same marketing for your content. For video so you, content, yeah. You, you, for video yeah. or a podcast, so you yeah. take clips of it. Yeah. And you take derivative assets. Yeah, you take yeah. the derivative assets yeah. and you put them on the different platforms. It turns yeah. out people want different things yeah. on different platforms. Like you want maybe behind the scenes and on Instagram stories. And yeah. And so yeah. when you start doing that, you realize like a 30, like this episode yeah. that we're recording, if you wanted to, you could probably go pull 15 different clips from it. Yeah. And each clip could be animated or with something like headliner. Um, it could be just static text. It could be um, put in its entirety. You could take other video clips of me saying things in the past and combine it with this new asset. Basically, you end up with so much stuff you can use to actually promote the one episode. Yeah. And so when you start doing that for every episode, there's an enormous opportunity. There's a trove of content. It, and, and like the farther out that people are from your audience, yeah, yeah they're going to see the short stuff. Yeah. But if they find their way in and they end up listening to an hour long thing, how much more likely do they become to actually listen yeah. to the next hour long? Do you remember Epoxy? Robert Downey Jr., Downey Ventures, that company, when I was out in LA, like, I, I don't was, know. They were like the glue for the social video space, but it was a, uh, it was, it was like, um, Hoot suite for video. Okay. And you could basically ingest your video from like YouTube or Vimeo and you, you could cut it up and you could like distribute Nate, like, oh, sick. like derivative cool. assets, really good IP. They, um, I can't say who, but uh, they fell through on an acquisition offer with like a major social platform and ended up having to get kind of gobbled up by another upfront ventures company. And they sold the Bemba out, out of Toronto. And I, to this day, it's been several years now. I wonder what, what's going on with that wow. IP. Cause it was like, they had like engineers just constantly working on like, d you know, developing solutions to help really easily, um, cut different types of assets together and put them out. And there's this other, this other company we worked with canvas. Yeah. You know, canvas, mm -hmm. Jared Feldman is the CEO of an advisor to those guys. And what's interesting about them, like they, they have a deal with like Facebook watch where they're like, if Facebook watch gives you money to produce a show, you, it comes with canvas now. And that way, when you're, when say it's, you know, lean back eight, 10 minutes, mm -hmm. Tom, when Tom first time came out, they'll monitor like the emotion spikes, like based on comments, like when are people most emotionally charged and then provide that information to the creators so that when they cut together like promo clips, that's awesome. they're taking the emotion spikes and then distributing awesome. it out. That's super cool. And that's like, I mean, it's the, it's still the exception, these companies, but yes. it's definitely increasingly becoming the norm. Um, curious if, you know, for Wistia itself, mm -hmm. like, impressive like few shows you've done like really like brand wagon do you view like obviously you act and participate as like a media company mm -hmm. do you see a future state where you build a bit of a media network and maybe launch an ott app and offer like is that some is that something that you want to talk about right now like that's that's sort of the type of thing that i would imagine your company would kind of like evolve toward um, yeah, it's a good question. I think we are, we are trying to, as we have always done, like, you know, when we 
taught people about how to make videos in a scrappy way and like, you know, um, said, turn their conference room into a studio. Like we basically didn't allow ourselves to shoot anywhere but that. And, um, as we've evolved, we've always tried to like in the meta way, like actually do the thing we're saying, which is scary. Cause like, if it doesn't work, it doesn't really doesn't work. And if it works, it works like really well. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's so, no in between there. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. To, but that's how yeah. we like it to yeah. be. And, um, and when you're profitable, that's like one of the things you get to do. Um, and so, yeah, like we're investing a lot more in Wistia studios and have way more, uh, content come out this year. Great. And so, yeah, there's going to be a, depending on how many we can fit in from a launch schedule, it'll be like four to five like major things this year. Great. Um, and will we be going to like an OTT network type thing? Like not yet. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's something that I'm like, I'm interested in and like, yeah. like learning more about and playing yeah. around with. Cool. We should talk more about that offline. Like there's, I spent a lot of time in that space. So like this, the whole like free ad supported TV movement, like, uh, last week, Zumo was acquired by Comcast. Um, there's a lot more activity that's, that's happening. Uh, we represent Vizio platform and the, their smart cast operating systems. Great, but they have their watch free service. Mm -hmm. Obviously it's mainly powered by Pluto, but, but Vizio is also starting to acquire and, and prop up like, like new sort of like, um, channels of content that are like Roku channel, which is another player in this space mm -hmm. and where the future's going is you have device manufacturers like Vizio platforms like Roku. So like social platforms getting this place, like obviously Amazon, Facebook, Facebook watch, they're all competing to acquire and license like the mid and increasingly like this longer tail of content niche, you know, community-based content, topics-based content, certainly B2B content, content from Boston fits into that. So seems like, um, it's a particularly advantageous time to be the, the geeks in the video world, because there's a lot of opportunity and there's a, there's a huge demand for, um, quality premium content across increasingly smaller subcategories. Like the announcement we did with Tubular Labs this week was uh, they announced their video, their new video categories, which is essentially like 3 million new topics, mm -hmm. 1500 new subcategories mm -hmm. because group nine, Viacom, the Viacom Velocity team, burgeoning players like Brute out of France, like you name it, they're all Ellen, like they're all trying to understand like the, and impress upon niche, smaller communities have, it doesn't matter like the size of the community, it matters how long they're tuned in and that value and that attention is worth so much more than a little bit of attention on a shorter spot that has like a wider reach. Totally. So it's interesting, in, interesting times indeed. Um, what else haven't we talked about? Is there anything else happening at Wistia this year, particular initiatives? Like you mentioned, you got maybe show three, four, you know, several shows that might, that might come out. Are there, um, you know, there particular obstacles, challenges, or just goals that you've, you've set for yourself this year? Um, yeah, of course. Yeah. There's tons of, tons of, <laughs> tons of, uh, tons of goals. Um, you know, what can I really say in this forum? I would say, uh, we, we had a, two major launches last year that were evolving like this part of our product channels and um, 
what you're going to see more from us is like we keep building into that and going further there. I mean, we're still hiring for a lot of roles um, and we're hiring for a lot of them in Boston, but also more and more remote. And so um, looking for engineers and marketers and more sales and, you know, more product help and more support, like basically everything. Great. Um, yeah, there's a, there's, you know, I don't know really what to say. There's like a ton of stuff. Um, I'm just excited. I feel like it's, you know, recently I realized that like, here's this company that Brendan and I started. And when we started, we thought we'd do it for six months and then we would sell it or we would fail and we'd just tell no one, right? That was our approach. And yet somehow along the way I realized like, oh, I love building a company. I love the process of doing this. And then now as we're in this world where there's like this huge opportunity to help other people figure out how to like act like media companies and build out this content stuff, like we're doing the same thing. And I'm like, it's like full circle. And it's like back to the beginning of what the dream was. Mm -hmm. Except now instead of like relying on somebody else to like be the gatekeeper, like there is no gatekeeper. Mm -hmm. It's pretty it's pretty wild. Yeah, it is wild. So what's the Savage family get into on an average weekend? You got a four year old and a two year old? Four year old and a two year old. What's on tap for this weekend? You know, there's gonna be at least one movie night this weekend. Okay. We'll have a picnic on the floor and uh We'll have the kids help with like making pizza or something like that. We're in a big pizza making mode yeah. in our house right yeah. now. <laughs> uh, there'll be a lot, as much time outdoors as absolutely possible yeah. to, to run them down. Last weekend afforded that both yes. days, right? Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. You know, probably uh, watch some movies, maybe hit the rock gym. Cool. Um, it'll be good. Nice. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. Chris, this has been a pleasure. Hey man. Thanks for, thanks for coming. Thanks on. so much. Yeah. Cheers, Boston.